You're listening to episode 145 of the Comics Pals. We're a group of comic book journalists and friends who record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives. I don't know if you guys were watching the presidential debates this week, but I don't know if I found a lot of the candidates' platforms relatable. Like Catwoman talking about how she just wants every household to have a cat. Didn't really care for that. I was about that. Um, I don't know if I... I didn't know if I liked Shazam's policies of like giving every male boy the ability to turn into a man with magic words. It's just a lot of weird stuff out of the primary season, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so I guess the question is then, Phil, are you like are are you pro the re-election of President Wilson Fisk or I mean, he wants to make America great, but I don't know. I just I feel like his like you know his campaign was was great and everything, but I feel like his administration has really just kind of lacked vision. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny because he's the mayor in Marvel right now. Oh, is he? <laughs> yeah, That's- in, in New York. That's something I find really refreshing about the main candidate that's running against President Fisk, which is candidate Vision. Because if there's one thing you could say, <laughs> he does have vision. <laughs> the slogan writes itself. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> He's go. got a nice family, you know. I could, I, I, I really could picture myself sitting down having a beer with him. Wait, with the vision? Yeah, he just seems so go relatable badly for him. I think. Yeah, my man. Well, he would he he would take it and just have it there politely. Right. He wouldn't actually drink it. Yeah. <laughs> he would just hold it, and then when you finished yours, he'd be like, "Here you go." Yeah, <laughs> still still cold. <laughs> That's creepy. Mark would order two drinks and drink both of them: one for him and one for Vision. No, no, no. One for him, two for me, and then I get his third one. <laughs> I feel like of any of us, Marco's the guy most likely if you were to go to a bar and he like gets two shots and you think one of them's for you and then he just like surprises you and does <laughs> both of them at the same time because he's a badass like that. He'd buy you a shot too, but you'd, he'd, he'd like fake you out first. I did that. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> go on. So, so uh, as some of you guys know, I might have mentioned in the past, but I was teaching as part of a marketing course and... Um, when we finished up the the semester, we had all gone to like a bar to celebrate, right? And I walk in super late because I was stuck at work. I, I was like an hour and a half late. And I get there. Everybody already has their drinks. They're on their second. They'll do whatever, right? So I come in. Uh, I come in. I'm like, all right, cool. I come in with three shots, right? Because I wanted to do with one of my other uh, teachers who was there at the time. So I came with three shots. And they're like, oh, Marco, what's that? He's like, the first one's for me, right? The The second one, the second one's to catch up. And then the third one is to share in the cheers with like the group. So you got yourself three. Yeah. Classy. Nice. It's funny because when you said you were, I thought you were going to give that shot to the other no, teacher no, no, you no, mentioned. No. But no. He was just there and was, was waiting to accept it. So He was just Mar- there. <laughs> Marco, that's what I got to know. Which which candidate are you supporting in this election coming up? I'm supporting the uh, the underdog, frankly. Um, I'm, I'm here for, you guys are going to. Shoot your free throw. Interesting. He's well. So like, you guys are gonna think it's a little weird. I I personally think Wildcat can do it. Oh, okay. Give me more. <laughs> he's he's level headed, right? He's tough. You know he's tough, right? It's true. Yeah. Third. He comes in. He comes in. Uh, he might not always have a plan, but his brawn uh, his brawn comes out on top. <laughs> I like that about him. All so right. I like, 
I like I'm when over Marco. This bit now. Wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry. I'm not yet. I just need to comment <laughs> on one thing. Um, I like when Marco shits on superhero comics, and he's like, "Let me pull up a kind of esoteric choice for my joke answer." It's not. I like it. I would. I would support that. Oh, okay. Fair enough. It's- I'm upset because the low-hanging fruit would have been to say that you were supporting the green candidate. Come on, buddy. No, I did that last year. (laughs) (laughs) I update my jokes. Phil. (laughs) All right. So. Take uh, us out. (laughs) Yes. Right away. So I'm going to do, since Phil hasn't done it in a while, I'm going to do a Sean's Funky Factoid. Oh, oh, shit. Sean, yes. I really thought you were going to be like, oh, since Phil hasn't done it in a while, I'm going to come out with a, a good joke. Oh, well, I would never be so bold as to presume that a joke that I would make would be inherently good, unlike Phil. Uh, so <laughs> I got shit on and I love it. <laughs> so keep us out of your bedroom, Phil. Yesterday, in fact, was the release date for the New Mutants movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's really good, wasn't it? Great call out. Oh, no. (laughs) August 2nd, 2019 is, was the release date for the New Mutants movie, and if it had released as intended, we would be here reviewing it right now. (laughs) Thankfully, we're not. Who says we can't? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I like that idea. Let's just review the movie anyways. Uh, yeah, so there's that. Do you guys think we'll ever see this movie? No. 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 I really don't. And it's a shame because it was one of the ones I was looking forward to. Yeah. Uh, we haven't really had a horror movie based on a comic book yet. Uh, or a major comic book, I guess. Because there's been like Spawn and stuff, but you know what I mean. Um, so I was really into it, but apparently uh, Fox wasn't. <laughs> I feel like this movie was like doa for so long because even before all the like merger talk and all that stuff or maybe not before it but before it was solidified there was the whole like going through reshoots and all this stuff like they wanted it to be a horror movie but it wasn't scary enough they were gonna reshoot like 50 percent of the movie it got delayed like twice it's uh, if we ever see this movie i think it's it, i i would be so surprised to see it like like hobbled past the finish line all right so here's a question what will we see first? The New Mutants movie or the Snyder Cut for Justice League? <laughs> Snyder I Cut. I say that. Snyder Cut. I'm calling it Snyder Cut. Now, now the real big think, the real hashtag big think answer is that they are the same. <laughs> <laughs> That's- what is wrong with you? Are you a robot? Are you buffering? That's not even a coherent thought. <laughs> like, why would that be the case? <laughs> You're not thinking big think, Sean. All right, fair enough. So, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I guess I guess I'm with Marco Snyder cut. <laughs> Snyder cut. Release that cut. I don't think that the Snyder cut will ever come out. I don't think this will ever come out. <laughs> I think this will come out. I do. Do you? I yeah yeah absolutely. They were in production and everything, right? Yeah, or the movie. No. The movie was made. They shot and all. a whole movie. Yeah, oh, I, just, right. I don't see a, a whole movie being fully made and not coming out. That'd be crazy. Um, well, I'm glad we watched it. 
Snyder's going to work with an author to create a novelization of the director's cut. We'll get that. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, uh, all that Boy, preamble we'll aside, welcome to episode 145 of the Comics Pals. Happy to have you. Uh, it's been it's been a lot of craziness the last couple of weeks with all the San Diego Comic-Con stuff. Thankfully, things are finally starting to slow down. Which, of course, is nice for us because it means that we can breathe a little bit easier. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about today, though, so no shortage of content. Uh, we're going to be reviewing Powers of Ten a little later. Uh, that is the companion book to House of X. It presents as Powers of X, but it's actually called Powers of Ten. Don't know why. Think we'll find that out later. Uh... Before you listen to our review of that, make sure that you check out our House of X review that we did last week on an addendum episode of the Comics Pals 144. And while you're searching for us all over the place, make sure you hit up our social media at the Comics Pals, wherever you consume your social media content. And of course, all over the place at the Comics Pals, wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or uh, what's another good one, Marco? Um, Stitcher. Stitcher. Yeah, Stitcher. Stitcher's I like Stitcher. good. Uh, and, of course, you can write to us at thecomicspals at gmail.com with whatever your thoughts are about this episode or any other episode or something totally unrelated to us, as long as it's you know in the realm of comics on some level. Speaking of which, we actually have... Two pieces of listener mail to hit you guys with. Uh, so, Pete, take it away. We've got an email from uh, our pal Ryan, regular uh, writer and listener of the show. Uh, so, he, he sent us an email titled Blade in the MCU. Guys, 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 oh. we have to talk about Blade. For me, this was the most exciting news to come out of San Diego Comic-Con this year. I thoroughly enjoy vampire stories, and the first Blade movie was largely responsible for getting me into them. To this day, it's still one of my favorite movies, but not because I have a huge attachment to Blade as a character. I just like vampire stuff, and Blade is an excellent vehicle for telling those stories. I echo your concerns about reconciling Blade's tone with that of the rest of the MCU. I've always maintained that Blade would be a perfect Netflix show because it would fit wonderfully with the dark universe they built across shows like Daredevil. That's not an option anymore, though. So either this movie will be rated R or they will keep the PG-13 rating and somehow make it work. Mm. What's up, Marco? Nah. What's wrong? Oh, what? Okay, go ahead. Uh, well, Jump in. It was like my my opinion, I think, last week. Uh, you know, you can make it PG-13, but R would be better. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay. Your reservations are yeah. well documented. I would say I definitely agree with that sentiment, too, of it being a better fit for like the Netflix MCU stuff mm -hmm. that is no longer canon, but... Um, now, how do you suppose they will introduce vampires into the MCU? I'm not sure. So I'm not so sure. I'd be sold on the idea that they were just there the whole time. If I had to guess, I'd say they're part of the multiverse, and the next Doctor Strange movie, which deals heavily with that subject, will somehow pull them into six one six. Alternatively. Blade could just take place on a different Earth, one that people bleed and curse more. <laughs> or one where people bleed and curse more, excuse me. Uh, also, you know who would make an excellent antagonist for the next Avengers movie after Blade? Dracula. 
in the same way Loki de- <laughs> uh, debuted in the first Thor movie and then fought the Avengers, Dracula could appear in the first Blade movie, even if he is not the main antagonist, and then fight the Avengers, who could recruit Blade. I'm not sure if there are any rights issues with the Dracula character, but I think this would be awesome. There is some precedent for this, as Dracula was a major villain on the Avengers Assemble cartoon. I think Mahershala Ali is an excellent choice to play Blade, although he might have to bulk up a bit for the role. Also, I am all fucking in on the idea of Snipes playing Whistler. I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on the subject. Thanks for reading. Sincerely, Ryan. Um, so, Phil, you, you you had hot takes on that Dracula thing, huh? <laughs> um, it's it's good. You went with he he chose the most inspired choice. Who's the most famous vampire of all? Also played by <laughs> Tom Hiddleston. <laughs> and, it, 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 hard- no, that's how you get that's how you get Wesley Snipes in. He plays Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> and it it takes me back to a animated movie that came out 15 years ago, Batman versus Dracula from the Batman <laughs> cartoon series. <laughs> He's everywhere. Uh, and I, <laughs> Brand, <laughs> the the legal rights of this 200 old 200 year old character by Bram Stoker is very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> pretty is sure really? he's pu- no i think he's public domain oh pretty sure he is yeah that, yeah that's he's, why he can appear in both the marvel and dc yeah. universe and nobody gives a shit <laughs> uh so thank you of course ryan for writing you said a mouthful uh we share your enthusiasm about the blade announcement uh i will say i, I like his idea on dr strange especially since it deals with horror like potentially bringing that into like the M- mcu just with respect to that multiverse a lot of people have suggested that and i think it makes a lot of sense it wouldn't surprise me not even a little bit you can't just say that vampires have been around the whole time and that's one of the unique problems of the mcu in that there are certain things that kind of are around the corner of 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 marvel that haven't been quite introduced yet but would have to have always been present in order to make sense so if you can't say that they've always been around, we just didn't notice them, then you have to have another way of introducing them. I think the yeah. multiverse makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I don't know, though. I, I, I'm i surprised that that's such a problem, I guess, for so many people is the idea that it's like, oh, there's vampires have been existing in the margins of the MCU somehow. It's like, I, I feel like there are so many ways you can explain something like that and like have it make sense, you know? And maybe it's not like, that I, I don't know. I'm not going to sit here and spip all ways to make it make sense. It just feels like one of those things where it's like nothing makes sense until it does. Nice. You know, because nice, like when, when you think about like how Black Panther was introduced eventually, right? Where it's like, oh, like, well, Wakanda has always been there. They were just off the grid until now. But like, here's an explanation for why that contextually makes sense in the MCU. Like, I, I, I trust that, you know, Feige and co, if they are going to bring in Blade and this broader vampire, you know, universe or whatever, like, into the MCU, that they're going to do it in a way that feels, like, organic. It's it's the same way that uh, vampires exist in our world, but it's not common knowledge. It's right. That, it's that simple. Well, Wakanda wasn't... Wakanda was known to exist in the in Right. The, it, in was the a, it was in the UN. It was a country. Yeah. That was, right, but not... But, but the whole, like actual wakandan society wasn't public that is correct the the impressive nature of their technological advancements wasn't known to the public but they were 
the public was aware of them. And I feel like that's not an that's not a comparison to vampires because if vampires were walking around eating people, that would be something that there'd be a high degree of awareness of, I feel. That's a little hard to keep under wraps. Yeah, fair enough. But I mean, I, I guess like my point is if they're – I guess I don't feel like it's unreasonable to think that there are a certain number of vampires living among basic human society in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and that they're good enough at covering their tracks that people aren't aware of them. Yeah, just Like if it's not a huge number of them. Yeah, it's probably just a fringe thing. Just like in real life, there aren't a ton of vampires, but we know they're out there. Same with pirates. They're the same thing. <laughs> I want them both gone. <laughs> I can agree with you there, yeah. I don't want there to be pirates or vampires in the world anymore. So Vampire. Wait, wait, wait. Um, uh, I, I, I wanted to address this other thought he had, which was um, the idea of Blade on Netflix. Yeah. That would have been the uh, tightest shit because I think Mahershala Ali could have been on television as well. He's done True Detective season three. That's right. Why not? He's in Luke Cage. Yeah, he's in Luke Cage. Give me that shit, though. (laughs) Uh, sure. Yeah, of course. That's a that's a no brainer. Um, so the other thing was the the R versus PG, and we talked about that before. I wanted to elaborate elaborate on that just a little bit. You're right. It'd be better as an R-rated movie. I will point out, though, that The Dark Knight was a PG-13 movie, and they got all their stuff in. And I don't think that that movie becomes a ton better being R. Um, So I feel that this movie can definitely still do what it needs to do without that R rating. Uh, Marvel's good enough to pull that off. But, of course, we'd all love to see it. I'd push back on that just because I don't think there was there was I don't think there was any reason for the Dark Knight to be rated R or any reason yeah. a Batman movie needs to be rated R. Uh, I think it's like it's more like the Logan thing where a Wolverine movie really benefits from being rated R in the same way I think a Blade movie would. Um, like a Daredevil movie would never need to be a rated R movie, and uh, and inherently I don't think a movie being rated R makes it any better than a PG thirteen movie. It's just that something some properties would benefit more from that leniency. Yeah, you're not pushing back on anything though, because I never said anything to the contrary. <laughs> this is the second week where I'm like, hold on, Sean. I agree with you kind of. Let me push back. You you actually one hundred percent agreed with me. You just felt like arguing for nothing. So there you go. Uh, well, here, here we are, folks. And then finally, on your point of Dracula being the villain, I think that that would be interesting, but there are so many other villains you could choose from that I'd rather see somebody else. Yeah, it's got to be a no for me, dog. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, of course, thank you for writing in. And uh, let us know if you're reading the, the Jonathan Hickman X-Men stuff and what you're thinking about it. Definitely want to hear your thoughts about that. Uh, Take us into the next piece of mail. 
so this was another email we got over on our uh, email address that you can write into as well, uh, thecomicspals at gmail.com. This came from Carlos, who said, uh, question for the show. Hello, Comics Pals. Big fan of the show and everything you guys do, so thank you for all the content. My question for the show is one I asked for the long box as well. If you had to write a f- write follow-up comics for the main ca- members of the Justice League, i.e. Wonder Woman, Superman, basically Snyder's main team in current comics... Uh, after Batman is permanently killed forever in comics, what would the stories be? I feel like it would be an amazing series, and you guys can come up with great single issues for each character. Thank you for taking my question. Can't wait to listen to your guys' answer. I mean, that sounds like... Dibs on Wonder Woman. <laughs> I was thinking we would workshop all of them together as a group, oh. but... Oh, okay. Uh, but, I mean, this is like a great random question of the week! There it is. Yeah, oh. thanks, Carlos. Oh, God. Oh, My wake up, cranky old bastard. <laughs> I've fused with Kale, so I've taken on his great advanced age. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what carried over. <laughs> that's it, though. <laughs> and his impotence. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, so this is, an interesting, this is an interesting question, and there's a lot to unpack with this. So... In the comics, the characters never really know that the character that, that a character is like going to come back versus, you know, just being right. dead forever. Um, and it's interesting because when Batman died in uh shoot, Final Crisis, I don't feel like there was a great reaction across the superhero community. I, I don't Everyone's like, thank God that asshole's gone. <laughs> I don't remember like a, a big there wasn't a big to do about it, but I think that that actually has more to do with the writers being aware that the character will return than the the characters themselves uh, yeah. not caring. So I'm gonna just I think we should all just do our own our own thing, whatever idea we okay. might have. Uh, my feeling is that Nightwing would certainly become Batman. I think he's that, done it before. Yeah, he's done it before. I think he would do it again. I think he would be inspired to do that, and I don't feel like. Battle for the Cow was a realistic thing. I don't think that would... I don't think there would be some great argument over who should be Batman. Although I think that when Damien gets older, he would want it. So if, if Batman died today, then I think that's what happens. But I think if he died later on, Damien is the natural successor. Which also happened. Yes. Yes. Uh, in addition, I feel that Wonder Woman would take it the hardest. Uh, really? Yeah. I just have this feeling that she would... She would be the most, and I'm talking about of the Justice League members, not the Bat family. I think she would she would take it the hardest because Batman, Batman rep- represents the everlasting spirit of justice across humanity, and I think justice as a con- when I think of justice as a concept, the other person that I think of is Wonder Woman. Uh, and I do, I think she would be hurt by the fact that this symbol of justice is now extinguished from human society. And I think that would really bother her. I think she's more removed from humanity than Superman is. Superman is more like a human than she is in a lot of ways. And I think that she would, she would see that as a blow, like a significant blow for, uh, for, for for justice. So I, I feel that she would take it the hardest. I think Superman would be hurt, but I just I think he'd be encouraged to do more. 
you know, I think he might have a closer eye on uh, Gotham than he does now. Uh, you feel but, like it's his responsibility. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But ultimately, I don't feel that a whole lot would have to change. Yeah, I uh, I kind of agree, honestly. I I think um I I really like the point you made there about Wonder Woman. I think that's a compelling a thought, you know, um that like I feel like in a, like obviously she has a lot of relationships like with humans, but like she is I think in a similar way to the way that Bruce kind of is is a little bit like removed and detached from human society whereas like to your point about superman i feel like batman dying for him is more just like my friend died more so than like him being this bigger symbol because i just don't think that that's how like clark looks at people you know especially somebody who he considers like a friend you know um but to answer like the the question of like what we would do as like a comic Hit us, i don't think i i don't think i would do individual issues I think my idea for for a series would be to do a um a kind of like anthology and like have it be like a like a giant size issue kind of like they did for like um issue 1000 of of action or or detective and I'd want it to be kind of similar to um those stories that they did the fallen sun stuff like after captain america died where it was just kind of like little vignettes of how all the characters that know him the best are like dealing with his loss. I, I think that's what I would want to do. Like, and I think you could just do that. Like as it, maybe you do it as like a line of books, right. Of like a bunch of different people, but you could have one that's just the justice league. Cause I think as much uh, juice as there is in, in, in that, like, like you said, kind of like the emotional, um, there's a lot of emotional richness, I think, that you could draw out of what the loss of Bruce would mean to, like, Wonder Woman or Superman or and other characters that are close to him. But I'd, I I, think that, like, it's not... I don't know that it's enough to carry, like, a single issue for every single one of them and have that concept be wholly engaging. So I think I would rather have it be vignettes of, like, each one of them, like about either like a moment that they had with him or something that they learned from him or something like that or you know what they like you said like what wonder woman sees out of him right like what does he mean to her and i think kind of doing that for each of the main cast of the justice league and then maybe you have one that's like the bat family or something or and it, the end of it could literally just be like dick going down into the cave and sitting at the chair and like the acknowledgement that like the torch has been passed and you know that like there'll always be a batman you know and like what kind of the the broader like concept of what he wanted to do and the the palette that he's laid for people to follow in his footsteps you know i think um i i, I would like the idea of having single issues for for everybody uh p i, I definitely think that, like having each character focus or focus each uh, story that you're going to tell at least on their reaction to that death um, and Sean I actually disagree that I, on on Batman and, and Wonder Woman's reaction I, I think I do think that she'll, she would take it really hard but not because she sees him as a symbol of of justice just because there was an there was an action that that, that happened that caused Batman to 
lean into into that direction Mm -hmm. and batman being that character who grows up around that and develops his identity around that she sees him more as like in my opinion uh uh, just a warrior you can apply that goal or that mission to anything and he is the warrior to be to that you would put in place so I, i would see it as her losing that force and that that power more so than uh, or th- just like losing a, a fellow warrior than necessarily like this idea of that uh of that justice not to say that he isn't but i don't think that that's the way that wonder Woman would see him in that light um and i think she i think uh superman and wonder woman might just because i i have always liked that relationship and that like love story might uh get a little closer in their loss because of uh how close they all they all were with batman what about lois hey man shit happens wow damn (laughs) marco you (laughs) cold-blooded this is kind of how i picture it um I wouldn't do a series of one-offs or something. I would, I would probably spin it into a story. And my thought is when Batman dies, people learn it's Bruce Wayne, which causes Wayne Enterprises to go through turmoil and a new not-so-benevolent billionaire becomes CEO. And his idea is to merchandise the hey. Batman idea. Merchandising and, and 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 to disseminate this idea throughout like the DC universe of of commercializing this Batman idea, um, which is a little meta because of how Batman actually, uh, you know, uh, you know, perme- uh, permeates throughout our cu- culture. So, like, my thought is there's this character this person that's died that both in meta and in universe context there's a lot of people that care about him but because of like batman is bigger than just an idea he's he's like an entire brand ip at this point um i would have like these bat family characters trying to interact with this this really obnoxious batman license that's like in their face so like their entire mission as these heroes who in gotham who are trying to instill fear into this just never-ending war on crime are having their likeness and their mentor's face blown back at them because they like whether it's something like private prisons are using the batman likeness to like enforce uh like incarceration or even something that was in tom king's batman run of like that bat burger thing it's just everywhere um i don't know that's that's kind of like the thought i had is 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 like a meta story of what batman's death is because like you could like say something like the actual core idea of what batman is is lost in just the mass commercialization of this character because of what a cash cow he is for dc you know how sad that is like (laughs) i just i i don't know that just strikes me sad like this person who was a hero and who did so much for so many people ultimately just becomes another tool to make money yeah i love it that's really sad yeah i mean (laughs) it's it's fucked up because like you know you look at 
almost any great artistic movement and that's how it ends yeah uh, the big thing i was thinking about was like disney and what like mickey mouse is now and what it represents to a lot of people like the big shadow orlando orlando is this poverty-ridden city with this giant house of mouse looming over it because like there's this giant tours revenue spot but the people that live there live in squalor so where mickey mouse and disney in general are supposed (laughs) to represent like this happiness and joyfulness and like you like innocence of youth uh i i don't know i like the idea of this like the the batman idea that bruce came up with being completely warped into something that he never intended to be and the people that you know succeed him in life have to live with this now and i I think that represents some really interesting stories i don't know yeah i think so i think i think this is dark as fuck yeah (laughs) I it's think the darkest night. <laughs> the villain reaction would also be really interesting. And uh, it's weird because the Battle for the Cal story, it, it addressed the villain reaction on some level. But I, I don't feel that I was very satisfied ultimately. And uh, I think that the secret of Batman's identity and the knowing that he's dead on the part of the villains would actually inspire a really big overwhelming reaction from the villain community because Batman is what keeps Gotham's villains at bay. And even if you account for like Lex Luthor and and some of those major players, Batman is a huge reason why they lose when they, when they go for the big play for the justice league level play, Batman's a big reason why they lose. So if he's off the books, I feel like Lex Luthor has a you know a, a better shot of, of winning. You know, you, you want, he's the one that buys one Wayne Enterprises. Yo, oh my god, that's crazy. That's what I, that's what I thought you were going to say when you brought that up. Damn, dude. I definitely thought that's where you're going with it. What if he becomes Batman? Ha! Yo! Okay. Oh okay. my god! Luthor, that would be so good. But, but he's he's like the commercial Batman who like still makes yeah. appearances at like McDonald's <laughs> and shit, and like does like ribbon cutting ceremonies for like the new opening of like a TD Bank or some shit. What if the public doesn't actually know that Batman is dead? So oh. publicly. Batman is just it's business as usual. It's a Lex. fucking sellout. <laughs> but but the behind the scenes, the superhero community knows that is not Batman, and wow. but they can't do anything because they can't fight Batman in public. So it becomes this weird tension between them because there's someone, there's an imposter out there, and it's if, Lex. If Batman gets all this, becomes commercialized, and gets his own movie, you think he does his own stunts? No. No, 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 no. Bruce Wayne would, but that's not Bruce Wayne. Very interesting exercise. Uh, I, I, that was fun. I, yeah, I appreciate the the mail, Carlos. Write in again, man. That was cool. Appreciate it. I had one other thought real quick. I, I just wanted to make a reference to something that actually happened in the Batman animated series where um, the villains figure out it's Bruce Wayne as Batman in a What If episode. <laughs> so a lot of the lesser successful ones... Uh, hire like a shyster lawyer to try to sue Batman to sue Bruce Wayne for like like emotional damage and <laughs> physical damage because you know he's loaded. Uh, so in this instance where you're talking about the villains going for the big score, 
Uh, some of the lesser ones are like, this is Bruce Wayne? Oh, we gotta, we gotta drain that cow. <laughs> Calendar Man's like, now is every day will be payday for me. <laughs> You're up next after Tom King. You're the replacement. <laughs> I'll get canceled so fast. <laughs> Yeah, Phil Phil does the Batman gets sued by all the villains arc, and then immediately afterwards does the Batman dies arc. <laughs> well, the first one sounds like something Chip Zdarsky would actually write. <laughs> all right, let's do some pals pulls. First up, we've got Marco with Aliens Resistance trade paperback. Aliens. Uh, I'm a huge fan of this IP. And what of Aliens? Oh. Like- it- of like uh, the the movie franchise, yeah, Xenomorphs? yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Power Boys, Marco surprises me, but speak on it. Really? Yeah, I, I, I feel like I've been very vocal about that. At any I rate, don't think I, so. No, no, you super have not been vocal about it, dude. When I was younger, <laughs> I also love Alien. I feel like you've never brought that up before. When I was we younger, were for years, me and my brother went through all of the Alien movies, all of the Predator movies, all the Predator versus Alien movies, I'm sorry, and any oh, yeah. associated like spinoffs. Nice, hell yeah, bro. Um, but this uh, this book actually has Brian Wood, who's a, uh, a writer that I like. He's yeah. done um, DMZ, which I've read a couple issues of. He's done The Massive, which I which I've read, and he's been writing some of these Alien stuff. Um, and I got back into Alien because a couple months back, William Gibson's Alien Number Three, the original screenplay was getting adapted in, as a comic. So, uh, what? yeah, yeah, yeah. So his original screenplay was being adapted and ran, uh, being published through Dark Horse. And I, I picked up a couple issues, like the aesthetic, the art was so cool. It was, oh, it just like got me back into it. So then I saw this plus Brian Wood. I was like, oh, word, I'm going to wait for this to get collected uh, and then pick it up. Okay. I have so many thoughts. <laughs> First of all, you're right. This is awesome. And I want to read this too. Because Brian Wood is fantastic. Second thought, William Gibson, was he wrote a script for Alien 3. Yep. That's what you said? That's, yep. That is amazing. I need to read that. that. That's so cool. And then also, you said you read The Massive? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't finish you it. You read, oh man, dude, it I was know. so I- good. I fell off at like some point. I, I, like, it was just like, ugh, I, don't, I don't know. I, it wasn't in bringing me in anymore. I just kind of like fell off it. For those of you who are unfamiliar, the massive is a story about what happens when the earth kind of gets tired of our stuff and it starts to kind of things, things go bad. And we're, we're basically, basically almost every surface is water, like just submerged in water. And well, it melts, a, right? It all melts away. Uh, the, the ice is and everything. And because yeah, of that elevation. Yeah. Yeah. It's all this crazy stuff. And it follows. You know, the survivors kind of doing what they can to survive and see if there's a way to bring Earth back um, and make it ha- inhabitable for humans again. You think I should finish it? Yeah, absolutely. I loved it, man. I think it ended great. Uh, and I, I think issue one to whatever, I, I think it was all fantastic. But yeah, otherwise, pumped for these stuff. Uh, and then also you chose Coffin Bound, number one. So I follow an artist on Instagram called, uh, you can follow her too, Danny Styles, or sorry, Danny Strips, um, and she's the artist on this different. book. Yeah, <laughs> and she's the artist on this book, and so uh, she's a creator I, I follow, I enjoy, uh, so I want to support this book, uh, and it's written 
by Dan Waters and uh, being published under Image. So she does kind of these noirish, uh, really bright colors. Uh, it, it, it's it's a good follow if if you like a little more of like a noir grittier art. It, she she's a good follow. Uh, Danny strips one word, uh, and it's spelled D A N I. This looks this looks interesting. Uh, I had I had actually saw that this was coming out, and I stopped on the cover because it was kind of different artistically. So yeah, she, she's she's good stuff. Uh, and and Dan Waters, he's he's been doing. Uh, he's the guy who did Limbo, um, under Image, and he's been writing Lucifer, Sandman. So. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, so Sandman, you know, yeah. yeah. Awesome. So Phil chose Daredevil number nine. Uh, yeah, I just, I just, I just read the first uh, six issues, so I'm a little bit behind, but I just want to give it a chance to uh, promote it because I will catch up and read this as well. Um, this has been really good. Uh, his plotting, his pacing is he's really got a strong narrative grounding, like. My, my man knows how to pace a story um the the concept's really interesting how he's been explore uh interacting with with mayor fisk and his police um that's really really good um that I, i'm really curious to see where that goes because it's always best when daredevil is bought, uh, daredevil's best when he's put in a corner and this is one of those situations where he's been put in a corner um He's extra broody here, and the like the appearance with the Punisher. This is this is a really good book. Um, if anyone's not reading this, they should. Pete, you should read this. This is actually on my to read list for August. Um, I meant to get around to it uh, last month because Sean uh, sold me on it, and um, yeah, I'm I'm really excited to pick it up. So, how many issues in are you? Did you say uh, five or six? Okay, so we've read about the same amount of, of this nice. series. So, so, so good. Yeah, it's absolutely terrific. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I can't believe how good it is compared to what I initially kind of thought because I've only read Chips Darsky, his more comedic stuff. Howard the Duck. So... I wasn't sure what to expect, and this is exceeding all expectations by a mile. I'm, Damn, I'm super. Yeah, Mark, you should read it too. Um, okay, I'm super curious, like how Chip's career is going to progress. We don't haven't we haven't talked about him as an author a ton on this show, but like this book really shows his chops and. I want to know, obviously, let him take all the time he needs in the world on Daredevil. I'd rather have a, Daredevil's been really fortunate to have just any number of terrific runs uh, over the character's history. But, you know, beyond that, I'm really curious what how his career is going to unfold because he's super un- underrated. Well, it's it's interesting because, I mean, like you said, like we, we haven't really talked about him like a ton on the show as a, as an author, but I feel like we have kind of talked around the fact that like he's one of like Marvel's golden boys right now, you know, like he's like arguably, you know, like I would say like among like the top 
names in the industry that they have. Like he's one of their biggest guys right now. Um, and you know, I think like he already had kind of made a name for himself with sex criminals and like he could have continued having a really successful career as an artist, you know? And, and I think like, you know, um, solidified his place based on that early success. But the fact that he like kind of pivoted towards writing and it's like, is seemingly getting better and better over time. Like, I think he has a really bright future ahead of him. I think like in a couple years, if he, if he can maintain this quality and continuing to grow and, you know, expand what he's capable of doing, like he has a chance of, of really, you know, being one of the names of this, this period. Pete, have you been reading life story? Spider-Man life story? He, I know, like the last issue of that just came out, and I, um, I'm a, I wanted to pick up the trade, so that's the, that's another thing I'm going to try to read this month. Okay, all right. Matt Murphy, uh, from the Longbox, suggested that one to me. He like reached out to me and was like, "You specifically need to read this." Yeah, you, you just had a social media post about how much Spider-Man means to you. You should get on it. Yeah, I'm gonna check it out. Uh, and you guys have been uh, mentioning Chip. We actually. Our next book club, the end of this month, we're going to be talking about Howard the Duck. So we're nice. going to be talking about Chip a little bit more and go check out our interview on YouTube. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, reading his Howard the Duck stuff for the book club um, with Tyler from the Long Box. Shout outs to him. And uh, I was the one who interviewed him at New York Comic Con, I think two years ago now. And yeah, <laughs> he's an absolute. He gave me some gold, man. He's he's a he's a gem. So Pete chose Crowded number eight. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of um, creators we've talked about and talked with on the show, um, we just recently actually had Chris Abella, writer of um, Crowded, back on the show, and uh, I we had like you know kind of caught up because then or I had caught up because I had read like the first two or three issues um, when it first came out, and then like my local store at the time was not like consistently having it either because it was selling out or or they were under under buying it um so i kind of waited finally caught up read issue seven uh before he came on the show so we could talk about the new arc and um i'm really excited for the direction the book is going uh it's definitely one of the books i'm enjoying the most i would say right now it's kind of like feeling that it's it's the kind of like weird image book that i like you know like it's it's a character piece about two characters that have really good um chemistry and there's like a a world with lore that's like deep enough and interesting enough that i want to keep pulling on the threads um but not so much that it's like a turnoff you know or like that it's like so alien that there's like you know what i mean like there's that that fine line to kind of walk sometimes and and i think it struck a really good balance for me so um i've really been enjoying just the whole like package there you know because i think again the art is like fantastic as well so uh yeah if you're if you haven't checked out crowded go check out our interviews with uh with christopher sabella and um actually ted and the art team as well and um yeah check out the book for yourself awesome so i picked absolute carnage number one yeah you would <laughs> why do you say that <laughs> i don't know it's just I had a feeling. I don't think you've been mentioning it very much on the show, but I just had a sneaking suspicion. Yeah, uh, I'm not actually reading the Venom run by Donnie Cates right now. Probably should be, because by all accounts, it's very, very good. 
I feel like I was I read a couple issues here or there, and I, yeah, I started with it, and for whatever reason, it just turned me off. Basically, they've they've expanded yet again upon the backstory of the symbiotes, and all that turns who me cares? Off. Yeah, all that who gives a shit. Bendis started that, and it's just like I don't want to know that. So, what did he name ahead. them again? The Clintar, something uh, like that. The oh, wait, did super, you say the Clintar? Clint, Clintar, nice. oh I think. That's it. No, I that's correct. That's, cool. that's right. Of course, that's where you went, Marco. You filthy little. No, fuck. no, no, no. That's where I heard. Uh huh. Yeah, I bet uh, you did. So this is Donny Cates teaming up with Ryan Stegman. Uh, and uh, bringing back Carnage, who's been away for a while. Uh, Cletus Cassidy. The last time I personally remember seeing Carnage was when he was thrown into the sun nice. by the Sentry. Yep, that's so, exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, I don't know how you come back from that, but he's back, and <laughs> <laughs> he's going to be bringing his particular brand of crazy to... Marvel once again, and uh, for whatever reason, I'm excited. So, yeah, because you're an edgy '90s kid at heart, Sean. That's a fact. <laughs> Pete and I both chose House of X number two. Pete, why don't you speak on that? Yeah. Uh, so, like Sean said earlier, uh, we did do a review of um, House of X number one last week. Uh, we'll be reviewing Powers of Ten this week. Uh, I am really enjoying the ride Hickman's been taking us on so far. Um, you know, I, I think there's obviously not too much to go on. We're only two issues in here, but um, you know, we talked about it in a review that I there's a lot of threads that are being laid here that are interesting and that like are pulling me back in as someone who's kind of a lapsed X Men fan and uh, that feel like kind of a natural progression of the characters as I know them, even though I've been kind of tuned out for. I think I said 15 years last time, somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah. It's been a long time since I was reading a regular X-Men book. Um, so that so that's really worked for me, and I'm excited to be, like, on, you know? And, and I hope that this event sticks the landing and that I am interested in continuing to follow the X-Men once we're through this event and it's not the hot, fresh new thing and we're not talking about it on the show anymore. Um, and that's going to be the real test for me. Is is can Hickman get me there? And so far, so good. Cool. And as stated, we'll be reviewing Powers of Ten a little later on the show. Uh yeah. I'm uh, I'm loving the run. That's all I have to say. We'll talk more later. It's been great so far. <laughs> it's good stuff. So, jumping into the news. New Gods is a movie that we're going to be getting here from uh, Ava DuVernay. She's going to be directing that film. It has no release date, so we don't know when we're actually going to get it. I would imagine we're probably a couple a couple years away, a couple few years. Because they're only just starting writing it now, allegedly. But it's, it's actually Ava DuVernay and Tom King. So, she recently did just a... Just a a Q&A on Twitter where she was asked some questions and um, she revealed a, a few things that I think were pretty interesting. So one of them is that we'll be getting the Furies 
and Big Barda and, you know, all those characters, presumably Mr. Miracle. Uh, and then also that Dark Side is going to be in this movie. You mean Thanos? I mean Dark Side. Apocalypse? I mean Dark Side. Mongol? I mean Dark Side. <laughs> Steppenwolf. Okay. Dark Side. <laughs> is. Dark Side. True. Dark Side is Dark Side. There you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Woof. <laughs> so, I, I mean, that's not the biggest bombshell of all time. However, I'm personally surprised that Dark Side's in this movie because I thought they would save that for the eventual Justice League film. I honestly would rather see him here than a Justice League movie, though. This is like, this is this is where Dark Side is at his best, you know, with the other New Gods characters. Um, he uh, not always the case, but oftentimes when he's reduced to being like a Justice League villain, it uh, loses some of its impact, particularly in that first volume of Jeff Johns Jim Lee's Justice League that, yeah. that that comes to mind, or even like Jeff Loeb Superman Batman, for instance, the second volume. Um, this this has a real opportunity to paint him as like a, a three dimensional character. Rather than just like someone for the Justice League to punch right away, uh, and that's really interesting, especially since they're talking about introducing all these other characters that exist in the third world comics or the fourth world comics. So, um, yeah, good. I have no issue with it. I think it's something similar to like how they were revealing um, Thanos like throughout the movies. And this could be like just him in sort of in the background, you know, uh, playing with the strings and all that, you know, doing doing whatever he does um that isn't forceful he's just using his he becomes more like tactful i don't know i i think um i think this is actually probably a good idea because even in this conversation uh between us who are the initiated right um we've brought up thanos twice now and i think to the to the average moviegoer who isn't really familiar with comics and isn't really familiar with the fact that there are like characters like this in comics where it's like this is the clone of this guy and this is a clone of this guy and they're the same but they're different and like Darkseid is a very different character than Thanos despite the fact that they have you know uh very similar look and like if if you're just like getting down to like boilerplate like what bullet notes about the character if you're trying to explain them to a normie they sound pretty similar on paper and i feel like that is a thing that the dc universe has to overcome if they want to make dark side like a central bad guy like the dc films have largely like you know been received from like really bad to mediocre to like some people really like wonder woman and like that's that's what you could say about this this slate of films and i think if they come out and like phil said just kind of have uh dark side re- reduced to a throwaway or just a villain in a justice league movie i don't think that that's going to do the thanos comparison any favors whereas if they have this movie that they can use to establish what is different about them you know, and like why they're not the same, 
that will, I think, put him in a better position to be utilized as a primary antagonist later on when we understand who he is and there's already some, like, heat behind him. We're not so different, you and I. Perfect balance is all things should be. I think I'm, I'm most excited to see Darkseid because we didn't get that in the Justice League movie. I think you guys are making a good point about the utilization of the character. Uh, and... Thanos is not a he, like I don't imagine that Thanos has a ton going on all the time like I get that he you know goes and conquers planets you know on occasion in in the Marvel universe in the, on film that's what he's doing but in the comics he's kind of just scheming you know he's kind of just a galactic fuckboy yeah they they call he's like a space pirate uh so whatever but dark side is a despot, yeah, yep. right? That's it. Like he, no, you, you got it. You said dark side yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you got it. <laughs> we, we, did, we did that. Uh, so he's, you know, he's running planets. He's He's got people under him. There's all this great politics and drama surrounding what it is that dark side does. And I think that that's really compelling. I think when you get into Granny Goodness and you get into the Furies and you get into... Um, Mr. Miracle and all that stuff and how Darkseid has his hand and is running through all of those things I think that that's really interesting and then later you get into him as why you know him trying to conquer Earth and that stuff I think that's awesome I, I have a joke and a real thing so I'm going to leave it with the joke um, <laughs> I have a Darkseid trilogy the first one is Darkseid was the sequel is Darkseid does and the third one is Dark Side is. Will be. Oh. Never never let it be said that Phil <laughs> is not willing to go back to the same well just again and again and again, you know? Uh shut up. Like if the joke doesn't land <laughs> the first time, say it two more times. That'll make it funny. Shut up. Rule threes. <laughs> uh <laughs> um now the real thing is I really like the idea of this being the introduction to him, and then the sequel would be or not a sequel, but like a Marvel movie universe style split movie would be like a Mr. Miracle movie that really establishes dark side. Now he's like a primary antagonist in that movie, but there's no like fights or anything. He's just a force. And what the point of that movie is Mr. Miracle is trying to escape. I think that that's fine in comics. You don't think it works as a movie? No. All right. Yeah, like if you were to try to adapt the Mister Miracle comic on film, like it doesn't have to be the Mister Miracle comic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the 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 broad strokes idea, it's kind of missing. It's it's missing a couple of ingredients. Right. And maybe they could work on them, but um, who knows? Who knows? It, it's really going to depend on how this movie does. I think. Yeah. But um, yeah, just a. Just an opportunity to talk about a movie that really we haven't spoken much about. So, you guys want to hear a very heartwarming story? No. Always. Oh, oh my Shut up, Marco. Okay. Oh, wow. Are you guys ready to cry your eyes out? Marco? Always. Always. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. All right. Well, I don't have any anime girls to present to you, Marco. I know that's what gets your goat. No, that'll uh, get my uh, my nose to bleed. 
God, not clear on you. that. Now my oh. nose is bleeding for a different reason. You were doing some coke? No, my brain's damaged from him saying what he said. And okay, your brain's long been damaged. So, anyways, Kevin Conroy put out a tweet that had a lot of people confused. Uh, it was a post-Comic-Con tweet where he said, Heading off the stage at the massive and packed Hall of H of SDCC, you pressed a letter in my hand. I've read it, and thank you for sharing your journey. What a beautiful testament to the legacy of Batman. So he wrote that, and of course no one knew what the hell that meant because it's really obscure. So Tampa Bay... Dot com, the Tampa Bay Times <laughs> reached out to Kevin Conroy to get an answer as to what in the hell he meant by this. And he went on to tell a story that really shocked me and uh, that I, I just wanted to share on the show. So he said the following. I have a very personal connection with all my fans. I appreciate their affection for me, and they know that I reciprocate that affection. An example of that happened recently at San Diego Comic-Con. I did a panel on the stage of the Enormous Hall H, blah, blah, blah. At the end of the panels, there are always organizers there to escort actors off the stage to prevent the audience from rushing the stage and causing a traffic nightmare as we try to exit. But one man caught my eye and seemed really intent on stopping me. I broke away from my handler. I could feel her thinking, oh no, there Kevin goes again, and bent down <laughs> at the foot of the stage to hear what he wanted. He started to gesture wildly at his companion. I realized that he was deaf, and his companion was his interpreter. The interpreter explained that he needed to give me a letter, and that I, Batman, <laughs> had helped through so much in his life, that he needed to take me. I felt an impulse to embrace him, and it became a very emotional moment. On returning to my room, I wondered, how could the voice actor have such an impact on a deaf audience member? I read the letter. It turned out that he hadn't been born deaf. He lost his hearing as a child due to infections. Some of his last memories of sound were of Batman never giving up, of Batman overcoming anything life threw at him. The voice he still heard in his head all these years later was my voice. He wrote that when he felt overwhelmed as a child, he would hear me telling him to never give up. I had been on that difficult journey with him and not even known it. The letter ends with the fact that he now has a young son of his own and they watch Batman together. Not only did he survive, but he created a family of his own. He's triumphed. How does an actor thank an audience member for a letter like that? It truly brought tears to my eyes. So, yeah. That brought tears to my eyes, too. Shit. Just the power of, of superheroes, man. The power of, of this thing that we love. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's just a really beautiful story. Kevin Conroy, he's just a terrific guy. There's always I always think of that story he always shares in interviews where he talks about how he was in New York during 9-11 and he was working in a soup kitchen and everyone's you know, everyone's glum and down because like this major tragedy just happened and he's in the kitchen, like helping like clean and cook and stuff. And like the main cook is like, he doesn't believe that he's Batman. And he, he encourages Kevin Conroy to go over to like the loudspeaker at this hall to do the, the famous line from the show, which is I am night. I, I am vengeance. I am the night. I am Batman. And the entire place 
lost its mind. They swarm him. They all go over to him. And it's like the power of Batman to inspire people during like tough times because Batman's all about overcoming tough times. And that's what this is. And it's really, really special. I had never heard that. That is incredible. Yeah, you have to listen to Kevin Conroy tell the story. I'll uh, I'll send you a link. I'll put it on Twitter too, so that uh, listeners of the show can find it. Wow. Uh, yeah, I know that a lot of celebrities were in doing similar things during nine eleven, but um, <laughs> the idea that a you know a, a superhero, right? Like, because he is Batman for a lot of people. A lot of people see him as the definitive Batman. Yeah, could go included. there and. Yeah, and and be there and and lend his voice, you know, and lend his lend his obviously lend his time, lend his energy, lend his efforts, but lend his voice, and that that could have such an impact on people and maybe inspire people who were there at that time. I think that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he's all around great guy, and um, really glad to have him in this greater superhero community that we all you know cherish. Yeah. Is is Kevin Conroy the voice you guys hear when you read Batman too? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Same for me. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, dude, I'll never forget uh, being sixteen when Arkham Asylum first came out, and like not knowing that those were the voices going into it. Like uh, Andy from the video game Pals gave it to me. He's like, "Just take this game. You have to play it tonight." And I booted up, and I was, and I lost it. I could not believe it. Yeah, yeah I, I have that exact same thing. They got Mark Hamill too, who's the definitive Joker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, just wonderful. So I think I think that that uh, story speaks for itself. So we can move on. Uh, we've got other good news. This one similarly quick, but uh, congratulations are in order to Jonah Wyland, who a lot of you may not even know. He is the person who founded CBR ComicBookResources.com. Uh, he's been in the industry for a really long time. Um, CBR was created in 1995 and actually, little known fact, was started as a message board for Kingdom Come, the the comic book. Oh, yeah. So originally the name was Kingdom Come Message Board. And then when Kingdom Come ended, in order to keep it going, because I guess it was you know pretty popular, he created comic book resources out of that. And huh. it ended up becoming the biggest uh, website covering comics of all time, pretty much, I think. And obviously... And for the paychecks. Obviously, <laughs> CBR... <laughs> CBR... Um, you know, has has ushered in a lot of you know started a lot of careers. You know, they've been front and center at front and center at Comic Con every year. Uh, the ooh, the Tiki Lounge or whatever it was called, they had they used to have. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, Jonah Weiland, you know, was a big part of, of of comics. You know, kind of behind the scenes. Um, and he sold CBR to uh, Valnet Inc. In 2016, and they sort of rebranded it, and it's now just CBR.com. And so Jonah Weiland uh, took off and has just, you know, kind of been MIA. But now, this is all a long winded way of saying that Jonah Weiland now works for DC Comics. 
He is actually the vice president of marketing and creative services at DC Comics. Damn, got my job. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So congratulations. I think that's awesome. Yeah, it's huge. He, his website, I should say, launched the career of one Gail Simone. Uh, yeah, yeah. Really? So yeah, she was a columnist there. So Gail oh. was a hairdresser who really loved comics, and CBR was in its infancy, so she was able to get a column there called "You'll Be Sorry," and through that, she actually got comics work. Um, Albert Ching, who was an, an, an editor at CBR, also now works at DC. So, you know, nepotism, of course. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Keep your head up, Rich Johnson. Maybe you'll be running DC one day. Uh, Rich Johnson's <laughs> career was also started through CBR. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, is that like why Kale's gone now? Did he like see this news and he's like, oh, shit, now's my chance. Like, I got to go become a VP somewhere. Yeah, the VP of an old folks home. nice so yeah congratulations to Jonah Weiland moving on so Stephen McFeely and Christopher Marcus are the writers behind Endgame and they've been talking a lot about their big success over at Marvel and you know giving us a lot of tidbits about Things that happen behind the scenes. And I think if you really love Infinity War slash Endgame, it would do you well to go check that stuff out because they've just said so much. One of the things that they've said that interested me and that I think might interest you guys is that they want to write a Superman movie. Hell yep. So McFeely said this speaking on the subject. I mean, I think Captain America shows there are certain ways to do a really good Superman movie in this day. You don't have to dirty him up. You don't have to get rid of his earnestness. I'm a big, the Christopher Reeve Superman movie is one of my favorite movies. So that's one we certainly borrow from all the time. Now, that's all that they had to say on this. But it sparked my mind Based on what we have seen from these guys, from their Marvel work, would you like to see them try their hand at Superman? Yeah, I think I, I think I might. Um, I think you know, Endgame has a few moments like, like you know, we talked about some of the things you could be critical of in that film, but I think the things that it does wrong are more sins that come from the reality of what it is and what it had to achieve and how much it had to like pull together to land rather than like any problem with how it was written. You know, I think when you get down to like the character beats and like the the dialogue, there's a lot that's that's actually really good there. Um like I think about the uh the whole subplot with Thor and like the conversation he has with his mother. And like stuff like that, that are that are just moments of like real vulnerability and and like emotional um, strife that ends up coming through to to land and and make his arc really feel triumphant, you know. So that like 
his rebirth means something to you because you see him at his lowest point when he's given up. And I think about like how well they're able to nail those sorts of things and the fact that they're invoking the name of Captain America, which I think, you know, I, I think about the narrative about how people talked about Superman like in a pre-Captain America MCU world. And like you look at the incredible popularity of Cap now, especially with the current generation, and like I feel like they're totally right. And like they have the right idea for what the right thing would be. So yeah, I mean, I don't know that they're like the perfect team to do it, but it sounds like they have a good vision for it and wanna do what we've as fans have been saying Superman movies have been lacking. Yeah, I I think uh Pete, I agree with uh, pretty much everything you said like i i think that they are able to capture those human moments and be able to capture um like you mentioned with captain america like he you see his strength come through you see his 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 tenacity you see that like that those ideals are reflected in that movie and and that's a huge strength that i think they can apply to superman to to make those smaller more human characteristics stand out uh, and i mean if they're pulling and invoking the name of Christopher Reeve Superman, you know, it's 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 a good it's a good sign. That's the right path. Um, yeah, and I think in general, it's it's kind of exceptional to be able to point to a non-comic book for a compass to make something true to a comic book character. Uh, and I think that's certainly true of the Christopher Reeve Superman movie. Um, I I think that's as definitive of a take as there can be on the character, which is uh, really remarkable. Um, so if that's the reasoning, then their heart's in the right place. The real then the the other part of the question is, are they qualified or capable of doing something good? And I'm definitely in the mindset that they. I don't see why they shouldn't be given an opportunity to. The unfortunate thing with Hollywood is that so many people, when they talk about Superman, uh, really just seem like they missed the point. Um, so many directors will talk about how boring he is or uh, their interpretation of what a relevant Superman looks like, and it kind of just misses the point. And there are certainly characters and IPs that lend themselves to reinvention and reinterpretation, but I'm not sure that Superman is one of them, or at least not one of them that lends itself to wild reinterpretation um and i think that's why the Zack snyder movie was as polarizing as it was to say the least um so the other part of this is would them writing it make it a good movie uh and the answer is obviously there's no for sure because so many hollywood scripts are rewritten drastically um obviously He's a morally questionable guy, but Max Landis has talked about his scripts being, you know, wildly rewritten. Um, so it, it, it'd be hard to say. You would need a director that would be also on board with the same thing that those two would want to bring to the table. I'm telling you, man, you just get them and the Russos together again and just go make a Superman movie. They, they, you know, let's do it, man. They made the best Captain America movie, and. Then they made the two, you know, the last two Avengers movies. Like that's a that's a proven. All right, they did the they did Civil War too. That this team of people. So like 
Get the band back together. It's a proven fucking formula for success. I feel like they could totally get it right. The Russos have talked about making a Superman movie, and their quotes aren't really... They don't lend me a lot of confidence in thinking that they'd be able to do a Superman movie. They have a lot of the similar reservations that other Hollywood directors have said in talking about approaching the character. So, Oh, well. I don't think that having reservations is an issue because they probably since they haven't been hired to do it or had an offer on the table they're not necessarily looking as deeply into it as we are right so i think if they sat down and were offered the role they might think on it more seriously and you know have a different perspective i feel like they could do such a good movie like they're they're good with ensemble casts and i don't think you need a huge cast but like you know we've talked about how superman has like a really like developed like personal life and like i just i feel like there's such a there's so much good to be mined there and it's just a shame that like nobody's gotten it right yeah and every in a long time anyway every good superman comic or tv show or movie has really taken the time to flesh out his supporting characters and um that, I mean, that's that's the, when you have something like the Superman that really represents like the best of humanity. You need other hum- human characters to play with that because what's the point then? Part of like the humanity aspect is interacting with people. Absolutely right. It looks like we finally know what Marvel's been a teasing for the return of Annihilus and. Whatever Annihilation story they're looking to follow up on. Uh, At Comic-Con, they teased an image that was of Annihilus. And it said, Annihilation is only the beginning. November 2019. So, you know, we figured, okay, some maybe some kind of return to that story or something like that. Um, Amazon has actually listed a, a, a collection called Annihilation Agenda, and it appears to be like a a trade of a series that will be coming out. And the listing says, The Negative Zone is under siege. Now the Lord of the Negative Zone, Annihilus, makes a call for help to the very heroes he once fought against. It's an all-out battle as Nova, Silver Surfer, and some of your favorite cosmic heroes try to prevent the next Annihilation. So, it uh, Amazon lists it as the following. Annihilation Alpha number one, and then the issues are A1 through E1. So, I don't know what that what that's supposed to mean, um, but Marvel does have this listed as, or Amazon has it listed as coming out March 17th, 2020. So, do you think that, <clears throat> do you think that, we're actually going to get another Annihilation, Phil. Do you feel like Marvel is going to go back to that? Or do you think this is just kind of using a name that has some value to big up a, a new title that they're coming out with? I don't know. That's a really good question because I was trying to figure it out too. The first thought I had is this kind of harkens back to like the Civil War two idea. But yeah. there's so much – Civil War then and now is so much more valuable of an idea than Annihilation. But – if, if I see that's the thing that's missing here for me 
is we don't know who's behind it, like uh, writing or doing art. There's I didn't I, I I didn't see any names attached to it, so that's the question. Um, if it was like a and it's not, but if it was like a Hickman doing it, that'd be freaking rad. And if it was Dan Abnett and Annie Lanning returned to it, then oh. I want to see what they got. Or if Keith Giffen was back, I mean, like if any of the original people or someone equally competent was here, I'm on board. We don't know any of the people attached. I don't know what it means. It's funny that you bring this up though, because last week I said Annihilus was my favorite Marvel villain. So that's kind of fun. Um, the, the, the best thing that's coming out of this for my money is that this almost certainly means that Marvel's reprinting an omnibus for Annihilation which is a book I've wanted to own as a collected edition for four years. And last I checked, the out-of-print value of that book is between $300 and $400, which I could never justify. Whoa. That's fucking insane. So this almost guarantees a reprinting, and I can actually buy this book for like 100 100 bucks or so which I could actually justify. Have you guys ever read the, like I've pumped this book in that whole cosmic run for years. Has any, have any of you ever read Annihilation? Nope. Fuck, nope. man. I've only read. Added as a book club. I've only read pieces of it. Oh man. I don't, I don't remember. I don't know if we could do it as a book club because I think there's a ton of tie-ins. I think it, I it's think extremely all, long. Yeah, I, I think altogether, well, just the annihilation run itself, I think is like twenty issues or so, maybe more, maybe thirty. Wow. Well, like the core is six issues, but the, the tie-ins and stuff, I think it's like thirty. But so it's, and it's so good. It's the kind of book I I feel like you kind of need the, the tie-ins. The tie-ins for it. Yeah. It, it enhances it for sure. I, for my money, it's the best. It's the best event ever published. Wow. Wow. That's a bold, bold fucking claim. I stand by it. I really do think it's the best event ever published. All right. It's utilization of the cosmic gallery of characters is just perfect. Thanos is perfect in that book. It's just so good. And and you say that with consideration for the tie-ins as well. So all encompassing everything, that's how you feel. Yeah, I don't. I, I I have our time isolating just the book itself because all the tie-ins feel so part of it. I actually think that that's the mark of a great event as well. Well, I mean, for me personally, I think events should have tie-ins because I think that most of the time the idea is so big that you really can't fit it into what is typically a seven-issue series. Um. And I think that great events are constructed in such a way, and it takes the whole editorial team, and and of course the writers and the artists are constructed in such a way where the tie-ins don't feel frivolous, they feel relevant. Of course, people complain because they feel like they have to buy everything, but immaterial that's immaterial to the point that I feel that if tie-ins are great, then they enhance the story and it feels like one big story. And I think Civil War is like that too. Yeah, and for most people's money, uh, the tie-ins of war was their favorite part of that book. Some people like they some of those tie-ins are some of their favorite books that were published for Civil War. Frontline, Civil War Frontline is the best tie-in series I've ever read. There you go. 
I was just going to say, I think Civil War is like the gold standard for that in some ways, because the tie-ins are not essential for you to read Civil War and understand it and get something out of it, but it enhances it. But it's like each thing, it feels like a part of a whole, but each thing also feels like complete in and of itself and worth reading, What's which is cool. What's really fascinating is that Annihilation and Civil War were almost simultaneous. Yeah. Um, there's a part at the end of the Annihilation where Nova, who is our our, our moving protagonist that we grow with, um, it's really fascinating because he starts out as the character we know from the New Warriors run before Annihilation into what he became, which is like a true space hero. Um, and he comes back to Earth and it's completely different because of the Civil War. And that whole thing was really good. That's from the that's actually from the Nova run that was happening at the time, which is a very good uh, ongoing book that was published at the time. Point is, I got, we, we're off topic here. Um, Annihilation is fucking terrific. And everything that came after Annihilation Conquest, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, War of Kings, Realm of Kings, uh, Thanos Imperative, these were all just some of the greatest books uh, Marvel's ever published. And uh, if they do really follow it up with a new thing with Annihilus here, like something that uh, is bred in the actual pool, like ingenuity, uh, I'm, I'm here for it. If it's just a cash cow, like... I, if it's because they're going to do a Fantastic Four movie in five years and Nihilus is going to be the first villain in it or something, you know, that hackneyed, I don't care. That would be insane, man. Wow. They, but and you know what? Go ahead. Marvel does that shit where they do soft ideas in the books for be adapted later in the movies. Well, speaking of that, Blade is actually front and center in the Avengers and has been... For the last like six or so months in the comics. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. For sure, that makes sense. And 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 look what happened with um, Carol Danvers, um, Falcon as uh, Captain America, um, uh, sure. Jane as Thor. Like all this stuff's slowly coming into fruition from five years ago. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I think you might be right on the money about that. Yeah, I hope you so, are, actually. It, for the book, I don't care for it, but as a Fantastic Four movie with Annihilus, that's fantastic. Wait, you don't uh, care for that? No, no. In, in the book, if the, if the book is just nothing more than just like a soft kind of let's let's oh. throw it out there for the audience, uh, then I don't like. It's not a. It's not something that was bred from a creator trying to do something that was just a fresh idea. It was it was a boardroom idea to like let's let's start pushing this out there the test audiences in five years kind of thing uh but for the movie itself that's great you know what i mean yeah yeah it, it's uh it's kind of weird right because we don't really know the mechanisms behind how marvel operates like is it it's kind of a chicken egg scenario does the brass say, hey, they're going to make a movie with Blade in it, so we need to start doing something with Blade. Let's make him an Avenger. Or does Jason Aaron say, I like Blade, and I feel like using him, so I'm going to use him in the Avengers. And it just happens to be the case that they want to use him in the movies. It's or column A and column B, you know? That's what I was going to say. If Yeah... If Marvel's intending to do an Annihilation movie, now that they have Annihilus and Galactus, and so Annihilus is one of their 
big, you know, overarching antagonist for the next phase. That is a really interesting direction. Yeah. I look forward to finding out the answer. Um, we did the Infinity Book Club, and after reading Annihilation and the impact it has on Cosmic Marvel in that book, what happens with the Annihilation Wave is so fucking crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, listeners, go check out that book club. It's good as hell. And read that book, too. Yeah. Uh, another book you should read is Powers of Ten. And nice. we're about to review it right now. We're going to jump into our review of Powers of Ten. Uh, this is... A surprising book in that it connects more to House of X than I thought it would. I thought that they would be telling, like, very un- completely unrelated stories, I guess. And they sort of do, but they sort of don't. So let's just jump right in and talk about this deal. Oh, and actually, Sean, uh, for context, I-, I-, I didn't know that it was Powers of 10. I thought it was Powers of X. So powers of 10 in the first page, uh, each one of those is a power of 10. X to the power of zero. I, I, now that makes more sense, and this makes a lot more like context. Oh. Oh, got you. I didn't put that together. I, I mean, it is, called, it is called powers of X, though, right? Not powers of 10. No, I mean, it's it called, is powers it's called of, power. I mean, sorry, it powers is, of 10. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, it is Powers of Ten. Roman numeral Ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so this is Jonathan Hickman. This is R.B. Silva. Uh, Adriano Di Benedetto. Uh, Marte Gracias back again. Uh, Clayton Cowles and Tom Muller. So really strong creative team. And I think it shows uh, this book covers the span of a thousand years. Um, yeah, roughly. <laughs> of, of, of X-Men history, which is a lot of time. And it... It introduces some really, really crazy ideas and some very cool characters. Does anyone have a, a hot take? Something they really want to jump out with? Yo, this book, uh, I, I feel like I do this maybe like once or twice a year, but this issue alone, uh, I think, could go up for an Eisner or not. Like, it's, it, I, th- this book by far wow. blew me away. Um, uh, just the, the way that it tied into the, uh, House of X, and how that leads to this other idea that just continues to grow and expand. And like th- this is the sort of thing that that I really enjoy um, when you're telling a sci-fi story, is because you can develop a world, you can develop a civilization, you can build the you can build the impossible, right? And Jonathan Hickman does that, and it's crazy, but integrates it with the X Men. It, it's it's just this awesome sci-fi amalgamation, and I love that about about one about the x-men and then being able to put them in that kind of an environment so for me off the bat this thing was sick oh and then uh when we get to the art like there's some great moments yeah absolutely the art in this book is is really great uh and and i think i think the thing that jonathan hickman is well the thing he gets the most credit for i don't know if it's the thing i personally enjoy the most but think he gets the most credit for is his world building he is an expert at thinking of everything honestly like 
Can you imagine having to come up with 1,000 years of history for anything? You know, that's that's incredible. That's an incredible amount of time, dedication, effort. Uh, it, it's, it's something to celebrate for sure. Yeah, so it's interesting because I, I think this is a thing that – this is a thing I really appreciate in storytelling. I think that like time travel can get a little bit – you know, messy, but when you have a story that is um, kind of being told across different timelines like this, I think that that can be a really fun and creative way to handle like telling a story across time that in that way. And this adds a whole dimension to what was set up in House of X uh, that I didn't even know was a was was on the table, right? Like. I was already engaged in that story and to see how that story plays into this larger story um, and kind of getting like some spoilers for like how it plays out and like everything is, is really interesting because it makes me realize that while that story is the story we're going to be told in House of X seemingly, right? Like, which I'm still all in for. Um, there's so much more to it that Hickman has planned um, than I even realized. And I thought there was already enough juice for a 12-issue, you know, event there. So it's really interesting to see that um, in the second issue, which, you know, or I guess second, first issue, however you want to categorize that thing, um, where I was afraid that it might, you know, start to spin its wheels a little bit, it actually just, like, elevated things to a whole other, like, level and that's really really cool um this kind of reminds me of dc 1 million by grant morrison the the premise of this kind of far ahead world building which we also see uh, come back again in all-star superman and that's the kind of thing hickman does where like morrison he he'll come up with some kind of crazy sci-fi story and and flesh it out with probably he probably has books of notes on the stuff he wants to do here what i really like is the way he provides the exposition um there's the very first page of all-star superman where it gives you the origin of superman which we all know here um the first page is how we get to the future and it's all through ex uh, exponents which is really interesting and a very morrison-y type thing to do i think because everything with the X-Men is rooted in that in that root word of uh, the root uh, of the word X, like X-Men stands for extra powers or whatever. And so many things the X-Men tie into the letter X or the use of EX and an exponent in itself is it follows that kind of that kind of very comic -y wisdom. And this first page, we have X is the zero power, which is the the dream which is xavier's dream x the first power is year 10 the world and it's him looking like uh, the 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 character from the ultimates that we talked about in our book review what's his name the maker the maker um and then there's x to the second power which is the war uh the year 100 uh which has uh nimrod uh, the lesser which was a really cool kind of thing which ties into a point i'm going to bring up in a second and then there's x to the third power 
which is a very Hickman thing that we saw in Infinity, I thought, with like stuff like The Makers, which is the year 1000, which is Ascension, which is like a very Star Trek-y type thing where it's like this far distance kind of uh, evolution of, of Utopia or whatever. So it's really, really interesting. The other thing I wanted to bring up as a first impression is the other use of exposition, which is when Moira McTaggart is approaching Scott in X to the Zero Power, sitting on a park bench who's visualizing himself in some kind of where he is in the world and she talks about the tarot card she saw which is what kind of leads us to the future and the magician the tower and the devil and that as like our introduction to these new characters that we're going to see in the future these these creations of mr sinister uh to like the fourth generation this fucking fascinating it was it one thing that was really funny about the introduction of those characters i thought was um you know when i when they first showed you them as like the tarot cards and i saw the devil i was like oh like maybe that's nightcrawler and i was like ah but he's he's red it's probably not and then they had that shot of them in the future and i was like oh oh there he is there's our boy and i was like oh no damn it's that red guy they faked me out again (laughs) our sweet boy we still haven't seen him I, I have so much to say about this. This is the this is the kind of book that like keeps me up at night, you know? This is the kind of thing that <laughs> yeah. Like I just can't stop thinking about cuz there's so much to it. So, when this book was one of the first teases we got for this book, uh, well for for Jonathan Hickman in general returning to Marvel doing X-Men was the page of uh him and Moira like him and Mora looking at each other and it had no dialogue and it said this is the most important page in the history this is the most important thing ever in the history of the X-Men and all it is now that we've seen it is Professor X saying I'm sorry do we know one another and Mora says oh yes we go back quite a ways and he says who are you and she says why don't you read my mind Charles read my mind and see and he says ah and he looks kind of like startled or shocked what the hell is that what is happening? What? Where is he? Why can he walk? I have so many questions. So, is this... This is making me believe that maybe he's trapped in some kind of... Uh, maybe he can't... He doesn't know his past, or he's trapped in some kind of bubble, uh, and she's trying to break him out of it, something like that. Like, what the hell is that? I don't know, and they're playing with the whole time thing. So there's there's other degrees of there's other degrees of this this very Morrisony type idea of this of time. Like there's one of the exposition pages about the Chimera uh, generation where it talks about the man machine supremacy, which yeah, is yeah. a very Morrisony kind of conventional thing, and then stuff like um, the fall of Krakoa itself, which eventually committed mass suicide collapsing mars into a self-singularity and i'm like where the fuck is this going (laughs) right one of the one of the things i was wondering was because they say like the scene that you're describing takes place in that x to the zero power right the the year one so how far back is that supposed to be in xavier's timeline is that like him having his first realization that he should start the X-Men and this is like Moira coming in as like a time traveler 
and giving him a vision of the future of what actually happens when he starts the X-Men. So instead of that, we get the Charles that we now see on the path that he's on where he's starting his own country and like, you know, is is on this kind of path as like a, a revolutionary. Marco, what are you thinking, buddy? Since it starts with <clears throat> the X to the zero power, I don't know that it's necessarily 10 years away. Like, I, I, I think, Sean, you bring up a good point where he could be trapped in something, but that it traps him and it makes him or gives him the idea for all of this. Um, and then he becomes whatever he is in the within the body of the maker and stuff and I, I I think I think that X to the zero power is just I think that's the literal I'm sorry more like the metaphorical seeds of Krakoa well it's the seeds of this story of this of this ascension yeah that's what I mean though like that, that the whole idea of Krakoa is this ascension right right but 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 I think I, I what's interesting though right is like there's obviously some kind of weird wrench being thrown in here. With the whole like, do we know one each? Other? Do we know one another? Yes, we go back quite a ways, right? Like that. Right. That obviously is the linchpin of like all of this, you know? Yeah, but it, it seems that's the that's 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 where the delineation occurs because is this a Moira? Is this a Moira that's from the future, or as you put it, that's introducing herself to Charles? She knows him, but he doesn't know her. Or is it something that's happening with Charles, like Sean said? That's that's the whole thing. So the last time that we saw Professor X before everything ended for the X-Men, he is in Phantom X's body and he says, I have a new dream. That's the last thing we see of him. And so I don't feel like this is a hard reboot the way everyone thinks it is. I feel that there's connective tissue from the past. And I could see how certain things that happened could lead to this on some level. Uh, like that, what I just mentioned, it would also explain how he's walking. I know he hasn't always been paralyzed, but he's been paralyzed for a really long time. Unless unless uh, Jonathan Eggman is changing everything, right, then he would be paralyzed. So I feel like that sort of explains that on some level. Um that this is connected, but then also the way the X-Men are left off uh, in Uncanny X-Men 22, they now feel that they they need to be aggressively, militaristically not... Uh, uh, aggressively, militaristically opposed to humans. A recognition that humans will never, ever accept mutants. And that they cannot keep trying to do the same thing over and over again. That's that's how it ends. So knowing that, yes. I understand a lot that's more cool. how it's possible to have gotten to the point that House of X introduces us to, which then makes me ask this question. Re reiterating the question, I guess, why is Professor X like this? Did he lose his memory yeah. after getting into the body of Phantom X? And now Moira is reminding him of what he's forgotten. Is it that kind of thing? I'll say, I, I wouldn't. I, I hope that's not it. Because if if Hickman is trying to take this in a new direction, then I, I hope he takes it all the way, right? I hope they they do make that split where it ends and he says he has a new dream. I really hope that he does have 
like a new coming to Jesus moment. And he's just like, no, we have to pivot. We have to turn away and we have to do that because that I think would be the impact, the, the impact that I'm interested in seeing and that hopefully uh, Hickman can deliver and actually transform or redirect the X-Men uh, as he said he, he is. But it, to your point, Sean, it also could just be a thing of, okay, he might, he might be coming back to his old ways and we'll, we'll get back down to uh Status quo. No. Oh, no, no, no. That's not what I meant. What I meant was that the new dream is this. Oh. Yeah. That him saying... Reminding him? Him saying, I have a new dream, is him saying, I want to do the things that we've we've seen happen in X... What is it? X1? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That that he goes from that thought to this conversation with Moira to X1. Oh, I see. Okay. You're saying that is that connective tissue. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Um, it's obvious to me that the death of the Xavier we knew was the death of Fox, and the new Xavier we know is the House of Mouse entering him and becoming Disney. <laughs> right. So the, the only monkey wrench in what I just said is that this is X-Zero. And so... If X-Zero isn't now, well, X-Zero can't be now because now is X-1, which is 10 years. I'm assuming that means 10 years into the X-Men existing, right? Yes. So if that's 10 years since Xavier's dream. Right. So but if if the dream is his original dream and not what I'm talking about, then I'm having a lot more of a difficult time understanding what's happening here. And that's that's my thing is I, I believe that's what we're supposed to be getting from this. And for me, I think it's the conversation on the bench is how we get there. Is that this is this is the moment where Charles is like some like they're somehow going back and giving him the foresight that his initial dream doesn't work. You know, and that like if he takes the route of being a pacifist and starting the X-Men and trying to be heroes and that's how they're going to prove that mutants can coexist with humans peacefully and everything, that it fails and his students and friends and family, you know, people who become family to him die and are persecuted and hunted and he dies. And, you know, if he gets all of that knowledge in this moment when she says, read my mind and see, right? That to me is how you get to X one and the Charles that we see now, who is radicalized. That's a that's a good thought. I like that. But I, I don't know how or why. But that's what I think we're supposed to be getting from this, right? Oh man, that's oh uh, that's so crazy. Like I can't wait it's to interesting, see, right? <laughs> yeah, how how that all unfolds because there's just so so much to it. Um. I, I want to – I mean I want to touch a little bit on how this follows up from House of X number one because there is a very small scene that does show uh, sort of what happens after uh, Sabretooth gets caught and Mystique comes back and uh, nothing, nothing specific happens. But we do get to see Professor Xavier – Magneto and Mystique interact, and it, it again highlights how this Professor X is different than the one that we know, the one that we're he's used not to. Not our Charles, because he's 
he's like, uh, well, we're building this new, you know, world for mutants and everyone has their part to play, which is a different take than I think Charles would typically have. He would do for rather than expect of. And especially the way he says it, he says, we're building a better mutant world, Mystique, and everyone who would live in it owes something. Right. Owes something is a very not Charles Xavier kind of mentality, you know? And I think you're totally right there, Sean. That, like, that to me is... All all of these things are signaling, signaling to me, like, this is not our Charles, you know? Like... He's been altered somehow. Also, a critical point, something that is so, so under the radar, but it's necessary to say. Charles Xavier would never read someone's mind without consent. Like, that's not a normal thing for him. And he openly reads her mind. She says, I have demands, and he just reads her mind. That's, that's not, that's not him. Or I should say, it's not how he would normally behave. However, if the conversation with Moira, Moira McTaggart and him reading her mind leads to him knowing, okay, things go bad if I do this the way I think I should, and he pivots, well, then those 10 intervening years go totally differently, and he might not care anymore. He might be totally different. Yeah, I think, to me, I feel like the that that's the implication I'm getting from this moment, and it recontextualizes all of Charles's values and how he would deal with any of these kinds of situations or conflicts, right? Like you bring that up, and it's you know that's a very like him coming from a kind of like um you know like a human mindset versus the mindset he's in here where we see him in X one where he is like you know it's this very Humankind and mutants are not equals anymore in his mind, you know? Yeah. Why wouldn't he use his powers? So, that's my question. What ultimately did Charles see in Moira's mind? I think it's everything. I think it's the history of the X-Men and where it ends up. How? And it's the Sentinels and it's... Is she from the future? That I don't know. That's what I think. Has to be. Right. And again, like, I feel like you you look at this, especially with the context that Sean gave us, right, of them saying this is the most important page in X-Men history. And this is this is the page. Right. Charles, I'm sorry. Do we know one another? Oh, yes. We go back quite a ways. Who are you? Why don't you read my mind, Charles? Read my mind and see. Ah. And he has, like Sean says, like a look of like horror but also of like realization right his eyes widen and it's like it's like something's clicking and i feel like it's them catching him in that very vulnerable moment of like he's saying about how what a beautiful day it is and how you know like he's he's feeling really positive and everything and he has his dream of the making the world a better place and how he can do that and how he can help his people and find their place in in human society and everything and then he that day meets somebody from the future and sees how every single thing that he dreamed that he thought of was a fucking total farce and that makes him the man that we see now Sean when did we last see Moira McTaggart I can't remember the last time that I saw Moira McTaggart in a comic book 
But that being said, I have a, a thought. Uh, what if Professor X himself is the one that sends Moira back, knowing that she would be capable, seeing her would be a thing that would, you know, get him going. And that could be the event that changes the future. That's some galaxy brain shit, Sean. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. That can totally be what's happening. I like that Hickman's crazy. more than I like the idea that this is like not Moira. It's a it's a sinister, you know, so, someone. It's a manipulation, like an, an evil manipulation rather than, you know, Professor X sending a message to himself like you cannot do what you think you should do. Or if we find out it's even someone else, like if it's like Cyclops or, you know, like his star pupil or Why? whatever. So, okay, we're ignoring the other part of this issue, which is we see into the X-1000, <clears throat> X-100 uh, into the, or X to the 10th power, where it's 100 years in the future. Why are we seeing this? How does this relate to the first half of the issue? I... I think this book is gonna follow these stories, like yeah. as as the House of as um, the Powers of X. Like this book will contain those stories of each of these Powers of X. So I think I think he's just giving the future, like he's telling his story in House of X, but he's telling the larger, broader mm. world of it in this book. Okay. Yeah, definitely. That's the impression that I was getting from it too. I think, but I think that Phil does ask an interesting question because I don't believe. That the future story, the future stories, will remain unconnected to the past stories. I think sure. I think that there's got to be some connective reasoning as to why Jonathan is telling us those stories right now. Because if they're just stories, it's like, all right, cool, yeah, but why do I need to know this? There's going to be a yeah. reason why we need to know these things, I think. And- that I I think you're right. So that takes that takes me to the other thing here, which is the whole Chimera thing. Uh, we learn a lot about wait Chimera, bro. All right, you're right. I'm sorry. You said it the first time. I didn't say anything, you, but like I, I needed wish to you say something. Said it the first time, though. You you can't have me looking bad like when Pete always says. Uh, uh, I'm not gonna drag him into this. <laughs> you don't even remember to burn me. I can't remember the word you always say wrong. It's okay. It's continuity. Um, continuity. I, I, continuity. I say continuity. Yeah, so I dragged you into mud. I'm sorry. Um, Anyways. Yeah. So the whole thing with Chimera or Chimera, if you will. Is, Chimera. Uh, <laughs> rolling around in the mud. Um, <laughs> so the whole thing with uh, the whole X genes and Mr. Sinister. Uh, that's a whole element to this set is only provided in text only uh we yes yes speak on that well that's that's my that's my thing here is we we get a whole page of exposition about how things get to be to the x to the 10th power without actually seeing it and it the 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 consequences of it are certainly very interesting but how do we get there like obviously we know how we get there but how do we get there if you know what i mean well, I think I think we'll see that. We'll we'll definitely see that, but I think that the the implication, at least in my mind, is that the the joint agency that is formed in, in House of X will progress to the point where they recognize a need to annihilate mutants. 
and that they will do so by teaming up with Mr. Sinister and letting him run wild and do his thing. And his thing is always to experiment on mutants and screw with their genes. And that the result of that is this this program that gets talked about. Where he basically uh, breeds the most weaponized possible mutants, basically. Yeah. Uh, the, the main one that we see here is Rasputin, mm-hmm. who I think yep. she looks awesome. That's a that's a cool character. Um, I like. Wait, Wait is I that, thought what I thought Rasputin was the the. Oh no! I guess the priest guy doesn't have a name. He, right? he does. That is Card- cardinal, right? Yeah. Is it cardinal? Cardinal. Yeah, but didn't didn't it say on one of the pages that none of them take names? The religious ones. So I think them calling him a cardinal is because he's a priest. It's like a title, not a, an actual a, a pr- name. Yeah, a cardinal's a rank in the Catholic Church. Right. And they say that he's devoted to the last religion, which I'm imagining is Christianity. Maybe. So I thought that the sinister line was actually being built out by the humans. Because it says when the population level of mutants reach a, cri- a crisis point and a constant evasion, relocation, confirmation, whatever was made uh, blah, 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 impossible. The remaining mutant leadership endorsed and approved the creation of the Sinister Breeding Pits of Mars. I thought that was theirs. And oh. then the no, so, other... Yeah. The, okay. So Marco's right. It was theirs, and then I believe that it was, like, Sinister defected to the humans, and that's when he did. they did the Hound program. Because gotcha. right, there was the a thing is... where they said that he defected to the human, the human-robot alliance or whatever, and then was killed. And there was a thing about how they said when the senior mutant leadership was taken out that it, it ended up being, in retrospect, obvious that it was orchestrated by Sinister. This, and the whole thing with the whole Sentinel mutant breeding camps, that's really interesting. And it, you know what it feels a little bit like without really knowing much yet? It kind of feels like Jeff John's idea of like the whole, uh, what is it, the Alpha Green Lantern Corps? Yeah. You remember what I'm talking about? Yes. Where it was like a, a synthetic, organic hybrid of like what would be the perfect space cop. Um, my, my question with it is I'm very confused by where the robots come into this whole thing. They are, they're the humans. The humans have, have slowly been turning into robots. That's the whole um, um, singularity aspect. Well... Yeah. Oh, okay. But also, uh, machines have always been the primary arm of Of offense that humans have against mutants. So Nimrod is the is the he's the what's the word I'm looking for? He's the uh, culmination, the personification. Yeah, he's the culmination of that. He is the ultimate version of that. Because um, he's just a machine, right? Like some of them are just machines. Well, it seems and, like. well, and, and, Nimrod, Nimrod is a machine, but right. Nim- Nimrod was created originally by Sentinels who were created by men. And it's important to know the biblical context of Nimrod, which is uh, important for like um, Kingdom Come to with Magog and Gog. Um, in in the Bible, Nimrod is the a mighty hunter before the Lord, or um, yeah, but before God, and uh, he helps create, begin the mighty of Earth. So it's kind of got that Nietzschean overtone. So him here, Nimrod the Lesser, is like this culmination of the humans inherit, like creating the mighty on Earth. You know what I mean? 
I love Nimrod, by the way. I'm such a fan of him. And this is a departure for the character in terms of personality. He's very different here. Um, but uh, I really enjoy... I enjoy Nimrod normally, and I enjoyed him a lot here. I liked his kind of funky, weird attitude. Yeah. He's like, uh, you're going to die, but like, I'm sorry? I don't I don't feel good about it. I take yeah, no pleasure yeah, in it. Yeah. Definitely not happy about it, but thank you. So what did you guys think about the world that we see 100 years into the future? It's very bleak. Yeah, uh, I. it's funny because the fact that they kind of like tell you, it's like, oh yeah, like everything failed and the country fell and Mars fell and there's like 10,000 mutants left and it was like, shit, wow. Like things took a turn, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially when they're like... <laughs> Uh, after the recent deaths of Exhound, Silabel, and Ghost, uh, the Ghost Percival, uh, the current population of Asteroid K is eight. I was like, "Oh, damn!" Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so obviously the Krakoa is gonna fail, but how how long are we gonna see that? Then, like, is it just this event? Like, do we think that after this, the the books that spin out are gonna be in that world, and, and the books that were announced are gonna be in this world? Like. I don't feel that this future we're seeing will actually happen. Damn. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think it's something that is going to almost happen and then doesn't. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. It, it, it does exist in its own context. It exists yeah. in its own right. In its own. Uh, yeah. Um. More interestingly than the X to the tenth power is distant future that we see yeah very well shit man can we not sit with it for a minute i'm sorry we're <laughs> just trying to jump jump I'm, all the way to the I'm end i'm you know? so excited about this distant go ahead future. go ahead <laughs> no we, we can we can sit we can sit with it i'll play with you in this universe um <laughs> i think the most interesting thing is that magneto's armor is green What's going on there, man? I I I really like the one line that uh, Hickman has for when he puts Rasputin, when Nimrod puts Rasputin in this uh, tank or whatever. The bath. The bath, which is, um, uh, wait, that's not her name. I'm sorry. Right, I just I just okay, read it right it? on the I, hit me. Yeah, it's I didn't si- clock it the first time you said it's Silabel. Silabel. Okay. Uh, where she where she says to her, "It's good that you're willing to die for a cause, though causes have long seemed to be fatal for your people, which is good." <laughs> and then, uh, and unfortunately, line, right? while this is a kind of death, it's not one you can escape from. Uh, and that is kind of our transition into the future, which is fucking crazy. It's a permadeath, basically, where she um, she it's like Sisyphus. She's permanently bound to hell, pushing. Yeah, you know, having a uh, an eagle fly and eat her liver every day. <laughs> well, first of all, Great I stuff. feel like with this uh, this House of X relaunch, Magneto. Like I'm I'm watching uh, Marvel versus Capcom or something, and there's a there's a color select screen for, <laughs> for Magneto <laughs> because he just got a different color every every issue, but it's the same costume pretty much. Um, and then again, what is up with Zorn always appearing in Jonathan Hickman books? Like this is a, another connective tissue between him and Morrison. Obviously, Morrison created Zorn, but here he is now. Um, and then is that Groot? Like, why is Groot here? Yeah, I was gonna say, what's up with Treebeard? Nice. Yeah, right. 
Nice. Yeah. Uh, that... I don't think it's Groot because it looks like a man. It's got a man's face. Could be a mutant. I'm, I'm sure it's not Groot, but it's just funny that it looks like Groot. Groot fucked Maybe Mantis, it's a new and now mutant. there's a kind of a tree person. All right. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, any other thoughts about the 100-year... Wolverine's looking pretty good. Looking Somehow. real jacked, baby. Real thick. Still jacked, yeah. <laughs> he's well, that's the thing. I think it's it's fine that he's still alive. He could be alive in another hundred years. What the fuck? Like Magneto's still alive? What's he fucking two hundred fifty yeah. at this point? Yeah. <laughs> so real quick with the bath concept. Uh, hopefully, I'm understanding it properly. Basically, it distills you down to your your memories and data. Yeah. And then there's this collective that it all gets booted up into, and that is the history of mutants. It right, it, it kind That's of horrifying. It kind of reminds me of um, you'll have to help me out here, video game fans. Uh, the, the 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 Reapers uh, deploy them in Mass Effect. The the what the husks that come out of it are they called husks? I think it is husks, actually. Yeah, um, that's what. Yeah, where it's basically they like catalog the species yeah. and then wipe them. Yeah, out. or like Brainiac is another comic analogy, where you basically take the entire collective data of, you know, a species or a planet or yeah. an individual. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like a pretty horrifying process though, like the way he describes it, and then you just see her like a thousand years later, still just like in this test tube it's basically like it's like like um like insect keeping or something like that you know it's like she's trapped in amber yeah yeah it's pretty horrifying is it surprising to you guys we'll wrap up in a few here but is is it surprising to you guys that nimrod is the the ultimate villain of the x-men he's the one that kind of gets it done i don't know it's a little soon to say like i I can't say yet you know I asked if it's surprising that it's Nimrod. Uh, yes, because I don't know who it was, so it surprised me. <laughs> yeah, it was, sure was a surprise to me. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. I, I guess, like, I guess when you have uh, Magneto aligned with the X-Men, it's like, a lot of their like greatest villains are, you know, like you said, like Apocalypse is like a good guy now and stuff too. So, like, yeah, I guess, like, sure. I have the distinct feeling that Nimrod's going to play out to be a minor player in all this ultimately. Yeah, yeah. I think this will somehow unravel in a way where Nimrod isn't as um, it's kind of a red herring. Interesting. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the uh, one thousand year. Yeah, this. This one is like the most Morrison-y um, because it's a lot of... Yeah, I... Th- <laughs> I was just going to make a bad joke. I was going to say, yeah, I agree because it was the part I was the least interested in. That was a bad joke. It's just a zinger. Yeah, it's just a zinger. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm really... I'm, I'm intrigued because it's like her postulating over the past at like a library because she herself is like a librarian and... Uh, a lot of exposition about the past war which again leads me to believe like there's a lot of telling and no showing about this which leads me to believe it's not actually going to go 
the, all those all this detail is not uh, exceptionally important to the greater story here. But what I really like is this final page where we have a weird Adam and Eve type situation here. Yeah, that mm-hmm. was pretty interesting. I like that they've uh to me it was it was sort of like a we've evolved to such a point where this was our past like it's just they encapsulated uh what what they were and are no longer are it, it was it was a really cool ending like it was tied together everything so but like what is the implication here then i guess right that these are like the human machine hybrids uh i evolved I think you mean uh oh the, 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 mut- the population that's alive i'm sorry you're saying the population that's alive? The no, the blue, the blue woman. Oh yeah, they're like a uh, human, mutant, and machine com- combination. That's that's the ascension. I think that's so. the culmination of whatever this conflict is. It's not entirely clear what it is yet. Um, I I thought that last panel was very reminiscent to like Planet of the Apes, where you know humans are like in captivity in this distant future where apes have evolved. And their whole thing is, let's pray that at least someone like Dr. Zayas would say, let's pray that humans never have dominion again. This God-given dominion, however it's put, but it's... Uh, see, I guess, and I guess that kind of unravels to my thought of this, where I think this is all a blueprint, this this page, this book, where everything that happens is is more contextual. And I'm not sure where I, I don't think I think it's really hard to try to uh, kind of, you know, parse out what what Hickman's going to do, because I think I, I don't think it's I, I think it's too difficult. This is like to me, this is like sitting on Earth and trying to look out to the galaxy because we're right in the very thick of it and uh, like in the, at the small minuscule part of it and it's hard to see where his galaxy is going to take us you know what i mean from our position yeah absolutely obviously it's tough to to discuss this because there's so much missing context but i think it's fun to sort of speculate um i had read a uh an idea and i'm not sure if you guys got this as well that those two uh, individuals that we see there at the end are actually like almost like um, uh, th- th- they're they're almost like if we had cages for dinosaurs kind of like oh that's all they are yeah yeah that's all they're there to represent they're not special in any way they're not right yeah they're just like zoo animals yeah that's sad but that makes me feel like these like that librarian because i believe that's the name of that character that that's um not a mutant or because that's what yeah that's what i was confused by is like it it feels like maybe it's what mutants evolve into i I mean but it it speaks about mutant kind as if they're gone as if they're gone but also says uh uh what's the line that they hope they never have dominion again. That's the about humans. humans, though. I think I don't think so. Is it? Yeah, no? they, yeah, because it, it's yeah. it's hovering over like those those panels. They're they're looking out into that. 
Yeah, so here here is my thing, right? Like, if you go back, uh, I think it's two pages before that. There's the conversation it's having with the little. All Halo right, robot. Homo sapiens, not Homo superior. Right. Yes. Okay. Okay. Homo sapiens. Yes. And then at the end, it's then they compare us to dinosaurs and they say, um, "Yeah, yeah." That's why we keep dinosaur bones around. Yeah. yeah right? You got want it. something to point at. Okay. Okay. Interesting. It. Cause, cause that's and and Nimrod makes it through, right? Cause that's Nimrod, that little floaty yeah, thing. Yeah, that's Nimrod. Hmm. Oh shit! I didn't realize that. That makes sense. Though. Yeah, that's Nimrod the Greater, I think. Yes, yes. And, yeah, and, and Nimrod the Lesser is the one the one hundred year Nimrod. Yeah, that guy sucks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's let's talk about the art. I. I think this book is incredibly good looking. Yeah, agreed. And I was, I'll be honest, I was a little worried because, you know, just just like, man, I, I kind of wish we had a bigger name on this, you know. Um, I wanted it to look a little different maybe from House of X, but um, it actually looks very similar to House of X, and that's a great thing because obviously they have the continuity by including Marta Gracia on this book as well. And he keeps things looking uh, about the same. But um, uh, Silva's no slouch. He is absolutely awesome. I think he and Pepe Larraz are doing a great job of uh, making this book look pretty. And I really, really love the new character designs and stuff like that. I think Rasputin looks awesome. Um I love the way Nimrod looks, and I and again, you know, with any Jonathan Hickman book, you have to be able to design the future, and the future is very, very awesome yeah. looking. How does how does Hickman write you? Because I know with with Grant, Grant will literally draw a comic himself and then translate his own comic into a script, and then give that to an artist to reinterpret, which is crazy. What now? That's something that's always fascinating to me. What do you have any? Uh, do you have any knowledge or, or, or recollection of how Hickman creates his ideas? Like how he parses it out on the paper. So I feel as though I've seen um, a similar thing from Hickman. I feel I feel like I've seen those kind of pages before of him like drawing out, doodling what he feels like he wants to see, and then um, handing that to an artist. But I could be wrong about that. Um, other, other than that idea, which may or may not be correct, I don't know what his process is like. Okay. Okay. Because when you have, uh, this kind of high, when you have someone as ambitious with ideas as a Hickman is, that's gotta be incredibly daunting to try to, uh, reimagine onto a page. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the pages that are in the insert pages that kind of give you more context and show you all the kind of weird designs and stuff. Those pages are probably not they're, like, they're not literal translations of what's in his, of it, what's in his book because he teams up with a designer to make that stuff. But I bet you that the descriptions, the written descriptions are probably very similar to what he writes down in his, in his book uh, for, you know, to go back to, to refer back to. Like that data, that information that we see is probably um, similar to what he writes yeah. for himself. Um, 
the arts the arts really really good um and and some of like i think something that's really challenging with with a book like this is the set creating a setting and we talked i think we talked about it briefly in the last in the last last week because the create creating krakoa and all its kind of iterations is incredibly challenging but to try to kind of create uh, a future two different futures is uh i i can't even imagine trying to you know be the engineer of that yeah it 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 was just really tight like all of the all of the lines everything the designs of everything really smooth um things looked sleek like it was uh the setting it was uh who's the artist again oh rb silva 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 was able to capture and create a mood out of each setting and in each environment that we were in which i thoroughly enjoyed and i love how uh phil mentioned it earlier but the tarot cards foreshadow what happens in the future using the uh more of like a symbology um or like uh it's more like symbolic in the like in the tower and we see all that and how these things play out um and then yeah the colors keep that consistency to what you were saying sean and it's just so good i've before this book i'd never heard of martha like sick yeah man i think the colors specifically deserve a shout out in um the uh the farthest future timeline there's uh that those shots of the city where there's like it's all like bathed in like pinks and purples and everything mm-hmm. and it's just gorgeous a lot of really good work there i like that the panels aren't super crazy either like it, it it's there to tell you a concise story it's not here to look super flashy i think the there only- was that one shot though uh where there's the sentinel who's out of frame and like breaking the breaking into the other panels that oh. was a really really cool creative shot that one and then i was gonna call out the uh where they they're in with Nimrod and Silo Bell's been brought in, and there's just these like yellow accents that get uh, I'm playing up, but there's like these yellow accents that just get marked around. Outside of that, like the designs are really just coherent. It's awesome, and I think that that's important for a book like this because it's so much to digest, so much to take in that you really can't have the art pan the paneling of the art break. Um, break your focus away from what's being said. Like the art should be there to be appreciated, but not necessarily trip you up the way that the writing is. Um, but yeah, I, I I love the simplicity, and I think that there's still a lot to appreciate without any zaniness. So yep. lots of really good stuff here. Uh, I think we can wrap up there, though. I am very impressed with what Igman is doing. Still don't know what the hell's going on, but. Uh, this taking both series into account is going to be a 12 issue affair. So uh, it's going to be a while. And I think we're, we're in for the long haul. So next week we will be back with a House of X issue 2 review for you guys. So, um, you know, in the meantime, write in and let us know what you're thinking about this series so far. Obviously, this is the biggest thing in comics that people are talking about, and we'd love to have that conversation with you all. So if you're reading House of X or Powers of Ten, let us know. Write into us at thecomicspals.gmail.com and tell us how you feel about it. There are other ways you can get us as well. 
If you're looking for a home to listen to this show, you can catch us across all podcast hosting platforms at The Comics Pals. And we are at The Comics Pals wherever your social media is sold. Make sure that you check out some of our more recent book clubs. If you're into robots, you can go listen to our Alex and Ada book club. That was a really fun one. I had a blast reading that book and then talking about it. It's a romance slash slice of life comic with a twist that I think a lot of you guys will really enjoy. Um, Of course, listen to our House of X number one review, which is out now. We've got tons of other book clubs. I'm not going to rattle them all off. Uh, They're all really good. So if you're looking for something to read this summer, you can go check out what we have, the books that we have read. Go pick up a copy and then read read it along with us. Let's do some plugs, Pete. Thanks for joining us here on another episode of The Comics Pals. If you want to connect with me, I'm at loud underscore Pete on Twitter and Instagram. Come talk to me about what you're thinking about what Hickman's doing with the X-Men right now. I'm really enjoying it, and I'd love to hear from uh, from you fine folks at home. Uh, and if you want to get some more content from me, you can check out uh, my stuff over at loopots.com, where I host their weekly Nintendo podcast, The Potscast, as well as our Patreon-exclusive show, uh, After Dark. Um, so if you like Nintendo stuff, uh, go check it out. Awesome, Marco. Uh, you can find me at Mr. Marco Enomoto on Instagram and Twitter. I wanted to call out the book uh, or the graphic novel Let's Make Ramen, which um, is by Hugo Amano uh, and Sarah Beckins. It's literally a book teaching you about how to make ramen, uh, the history of it, and different kinds of recipes. Um, and so it's all in graphic novel format, so it's really, really cool to see the pages and the actual art of each of these uh, steps. So just a shout out to that because I'm a big fan of food, uh, and I would love to learn to make some ramen. Did that book make, nice. make ramen? I haven't, uh, I haven't gotten it yet. It hasn't gotten oh, okay. here. Okay. Well, you got to keep us posted then. Mm-hmm. How about you, Phil? You can find me at uh, on all social media platforms at Cyborg Bebop. You can't find me on TikTok, though. Sorry. Um, and I'm not on the one that's really popular in Asia right now. I forget what it's called. I'm not on that either. But the conventional ones, you can find me. And uh, for all you poop enthusiasts out there, you can check out my, to- my new poop podcast, <laughs> The Poop Pots, um, where me and a bunch of poop journalists uh, get together and talk about poop. Check it out. All right. Uh, as for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram only at Sean Soapbox. Hit me up to talk about Jonathan Hickman's stellar so far X-Men stuff. And uh, if you're a Hickman fan in general, let's talk about some of your favorite books that he's done. And with that, you're the Comics Pals signing off. Take care, guys. See you next week. Bye.